You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our network of foreign correspondents. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, I'm talking to our new Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, about Donald Trump's determination to rid the country of the undocumented and the fear he is generating in whole communities as immigration police move against his first targets, migrants with even the most minor of criminal records. And Hugh Linehan is in studio with me to discuss Mark Zuckerberg's recent initiative, a 6,000-word letter to his 2 billion-strong Facebook community and the world, titled Building Global Community. What is he at, and does this represent a significant turning point in the social media revolution? Firstly, to the US. A frisson of fear has gone round immigrant communities in the US as Trump has taken the shackles off the country's immigration police. Here he is speaking last week. You see what's happening at the border. All of a sudden, for the first time, we're getting gang members out, we're getting drug lords out. We're getting really bad dudes out of this country and at a rate that nobody's ever seen before. And they're the bad ones. And it's a military operation because uh, what has been allowed to come into our country, when you see gang violence that you've read about like never before and all of the things, much of that is people that are here illegally. Many Hispanics are even fearful to leave home or are not sending their children to school for fear of being caught up in random raids. Suzanne Lynch... In lowering thresholds on criminal convictions, he's massively increased the pool of those threatened. Yes. So Donald Trump's move on immigration, uh, the White House has been keen to stress that they're simply working within the law, that the uh, new guidelines that were issued last week um, are just about implementing existing immigration law. But in fact, as you say, um, in effect, what's happening now is that the pool of people who can be um, practically deported has has dramatically increased. Um, So what... uh, the fear now is that a lot of uh, illegal, undocumented immigrants are worried that as they go about their daily business, for example, I was speaking to uh, people here who were saying that their their cleaners or their child miners were afraid to get in the car and drive because they were worried that if they were pulled aside by a cop and their license was checked, well, then they could be uh, sent to, uh, to uh, deportation officials and perhaps deported. Now, people working in the industry have been you know, keen to stress that this is not the case, that at the end of the day, police officers in the U.S. are not immigration officers, that they answer to the state, they answer to the city, and they don't answer really to the federal government when it comes to immigration issues. Um, But at the same time, it's put a huge fear into the uh, undocumented community here. And there's been quite a few hard cases uh, have Mm. emerged uh, of people being sent back who've been in the U.S. for very long periods of time. Absolutely. I mean, I think one particular case uh, that came to the surface earlier this month in in February was a woman who, a Mexican lady who had come here uh, to America at the age of 14. Um, She's now in her mid-30s with two children. Uh, And when she went to to check in to her immigration officers, uh, like she usually did, she was actually detained uh, this was on a Wednesday. By Thursday, she was on a plane back to Mexico. Um, uh, she had a conviction for using a fake social security number in her younger years, um, and this was the crime um, for which uh, she was deported. Now, really effectively, the way the system has worked here is that people like that, there's been, a, I suppose, a blind eye thrown at this kind of um, ac- activity. Uh, something like a social security number issue is not seen as a as a hugely threatening crime. Um, but that, that case of that woman led to a lot of protests down in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, but she's back in Mexico. Um, so this is why a lot of 
people now are very, very concerned in these communities um, about uh, deportation and immigration officials taking these uh, this newfound power to heart and really implementing um, really the full letter of the law. And I think one of the most significant things uh, Trump has announced is this increase in staffing. So in total, about 15,000 extra staff have been uh, deployed or will be deployed under this uh, new announcement um, last week uh, to try and implement this immigration policy. Now, you've been talking about how uh, the police are not in, exactly at the forefront of, of this. And in some of the cities, the so-called sanctuary cities, there's been a pushback uh, by the local communities. I, I see that they're protesting at the use of the word police by the immigration police. Mm -hmm. It is going to be an interesting story to follow over the next few years. I mean, we've seen a lot of tension between Trump and the states, you know, the federal system and the, and the individual states in lots of ways. For example, in his executive order on immigration, where some of the states stood up to that through their attorney general. But this issue of the sanctuary cities, these are cities like New York, San Francisco, that have taken a much more inclusive, liberal uh, view on their undocumented immigrants and, and really have moved to protect them. Um, they have suggested very strongly that they are not going to be pushed around on this. They are going to continue uh, protecting their undocumented um, immigrants. Uh, so this is going to be quite interesting. We've seen the mayor of New York coming out, um, really a lot of these democratic-based uh, cities. Um, so I think we saw a lot of protests. It's galvanized as well, I think, the Democratic community. Um, last week, uh, Republicans and Democrats from, from the two houses were back in their constituencies. And we saw the immigration issue really, really come up at these town hall meetings um, where people are very, very concerned about the impact of, of Trump's stance on immigration, about people in their own communities. What's been the response in the Irish community specifically? Do, do, they, do they have the same fears? <laughs> Yeah, I think there is a fear in the Irish community. I suppose one thing to note is there is an estimated 50,000 Irish citizens that are living in the US illegally. But for obvious reasons, it's, it's notoriously difficult to quantify exactly. Now, of course, there could be up to 6 million Mexicans. So I suppose that gives a kind of a comparison here. But I was speaking to Kieran Staunton, who's a very um, senior figure in this whole issue for years here in the US. And he his message really was to people was not to panic, that um, other presidents have come out strongly on immigration. And, you know, he said that Irish doc undocumented should not make any hasty decisions. And, and he was making the point that, that Trump has said that the number one target here are, are criminal legals and those who are maybe already on list for deportation. Um, and that could be up to a million uh, undocumented immigrants that the Trump administration, administration is going to focus on first. So really, he was making the point there that in terms of even resources, the reality is that the Trump administration is probably never going to even get around uh, to implementing um, the kind of measures that some people are so fearful of because there's such a backlog and there are so many people who have criminal convictions who will be um, who will be targeted first. Um, but this is likely to really focus now, uh, be the focus of debate of discussion here in Washington in a few weeks' time uh, during the Taoiseach's visit at the White House. As we expect that this is going to be raised, it's been raised at the highest diplomatic levels, um, and we do expect this to be a, a huge issue for the Irish diplomats here in the US going forward in the next few months. And can can Kenny make a difference? Is there is there a basis for a special case for the Irish? I mean, I do think um, there is an argument that... And I, you know, that one of the problems, a lot of the Irish people here, it, it seems strange for people 
in our entry lives, but they may be undocumented and illegal, but they've actually been paying taxes, a lot of them. So they have maybe gone to America on a J-1 visa, and when they came back, continued using that social security number and paid taxes on that. So to sense there is a kind of a moral issue here, if a country is prepared to take the taxes of a person for 10 and 20 years, are they going to be prepared to just, you know, with a stroke of a pen, throw them out? So there's always been these huge mismatches within the US complex immigration system. Um, so that, they're the kind of profile of a lot of the Irish here. Um, and, the, and there are a lot of figures out there to show the uh, the contribution uh, immigrants have made to the economy, not just in terms of the jobs they do, but as I say, in terms of the taxes, huge numbers there, um, maybe about 12 billion a year, as uh, some estimates suggest, that uh, undocumented immigrants pay into uh, the US system each year. So, you know, this is not something that's going to be embarked on lightly. Uh, but I do think um, Kenny will um, prioritise this. And I think, um, you know, he will listen, particularly in Congress, there is a respect you know, for Ireland and for the idea of, of the prime minister, decision prime minister of a country and um, coming over and making that case. And I think, again, it'll be Ireland's friends in Congress, both from the Democratic and Republican side, uh, that will be hugely important here. Now, the Secretary of State uh, Tillerson was in Mexico this week. Um, how did that go? I mean, they're certainly not going to help out. They're certainly not going to pay for the wall. Yes, well, this follows the cancellation by the president uh, of Mexico of his trip to to Washington within a few days of Trump's inauguration. He pulled out of that um, after Trump reiterated his plan to build the wall. Um, so in a sense, you know, the White House was asked, was Tillerson being sent to bat for, for Trump? Um, and, and interestingly, John Kelly, the, the head of Homeland Security, also went on that visit. Um, it went pretty well in the sense that um, there were no huge uh, conflicts arising from that meeting. Uh, but Mexico made it very clear that it, it had objections to a whole range of issues um, that are now affecting U.S.-Mexican relations. It's not, it's not just immigration. Um, it's also the uh, issue of trade. Uh, Trump's pledge to introduce a border adjustment tax, that's an, a tax on imports, that would severely hit Mexican imports. He's also questioned the North Atlantic Free Trade Association agreement, that free trade area, including Mexico, Canada and the US. So there is a swathe of issues here that are affecting um, these allies, and they are allies. I mean, it's important for the US to keep Mexico um, on side. Um, they, they cooperate a lot in terms of organized crime, for example. We've seen a lot of progress in that in the last few months with, with high-profile arrests there. So I think this is an attempt to calm the waters. Um, but at the moment, Mexico is waiting until it gets um, new detail about how this wall is going to be funded. Um, and that is all bound up with Trump's plan on tax reform and whether there will be enough uh, revenue raising from that uh, to help the whole wall issue and a further measure than immigration. Of course, in, in recent years, the numbers crossing the Mexican border into the US have been predominantly not Mexican, in fact, but, but other Latin American uh, countries, Ecuador and, and, and Guatemalans and, and the mm. like. And the Mexicans are saying, as I understand it, they have no obligation whatsoever to have these people thrown back on them. And they're going to make it as difficult as possible for, for uh, the US to deport uh, the, these uh, people, and uh, that they're also going to put up barriers to the Americans deporting uh, so-called Mexicans without proper evidence that they are actually Mexicans. So it's going to be quite a difficult um, job the Americans have. Yes, it's a legal quagmire. In some ways, it's, it's comparable to the immigration issue in Europe, where you've got um, thousands of migrants coming through Turkey or coming through Libya, where in fact most of these migrants are not Turkish or Libyan. Um, so what 
what has happened there is that we've seen a move by the European Union to engage with the countries of origin, as they call, call it. Now, whether we will see something similar here in the US, but the signs are that at the very time um, when Trump is trying to increase um, this crackdown on immigration and increase his spending on, on, on military and the defence budget, he's actually looking to, um, we expect, uh, to reduce funding for the State Department. You know, so how does that work? You need a much, much more broad-based and much more nuanced plan to deal with immigration uh, rather than this blunt idea of just putting up that wall. Uh, there was a high-profile case it's, when you mentioned about, you know, can Mexicans, can America prove that the, the people going across the border are Mexicans? There was a high-profile case last week of a, of a Mexican man who was deported uh, from the US, I think for the second or third time. And um, he, he threw himself off a bridge and died uh, within an hour. Um, and, you know, this was a hugely symbolic, I suppose, moment um, that weighed heavily on this meeting between the US officials and Mexico uh, last week. Um, but you're right. I mean, it's highly complex legally. It's, it's a hugely complex quagmire. And again, um, I think Trump, you know, will need to get the support, not just obviously in Mexico, but from his own, uh, from his own Congress. And uh, for decades, immigration reform has been a thorny issue and it, it, it doesn't, pr it promises to be the exact same during his tenure. Thank you very much, Suzanne. Hi, my name's Hugh Linehan, and I just wanted to take a few seconds to tell you about the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. Every week I'm joined by our own expert analysts along with elected politicians and people who just have interesting political ideas. If you're interested in how the system works, how it could be made better, and what effects politics really has on your life, join me every Wednesday for Inside Politics. You can find it on irishtimes.com podcasts or on your preferred podcast app. With the start of the new year and the election of a new US president, Facebook boss Mark Zuckerberg now appears to be working towards a redefinition of his organisation's role in the news media. It now has nearly 2 billion members, which makes it larger than any nation in the world. As a business, it generates revenue totalling 27 billion last year, a massive problem for newspapers. But, importantly, Zuckerberg appears to be acknowledging that Facebook is a news organisation and has responsibilities. On February 16th, he posted a nearly 6,000-word letter to the Facebook community titled Building Global Community, in which he encouraged the creation of supportive, safe, informed, civically engaged and inclusive communities all through social media. Are we, he asks, building the world as we want? Hugh Lennon, what did you see in Zuckerberg's message? Well, then one of the questions immediately is, who's the we in Mark Zuckerberg's we there? Is it his two billion users? Is it his shareholders to whom he is ultimately answerable? Or is it indeed the, the, the whole world, including people who aren't on Facebook in the first place? I suppose, first of all, if you look at it from with a wide angle lens, the reality is, as you said, that Facebook has become more and more powerful as a mechanism or a platform by which people communicate with each other, gain information, uh, make political decisions and uh, you know, find out the things that matter to them and their lives, which is a very broad range of things, which it should be said doesn't just include news, it includes lots and lots of other things, including their personal lives and their their, their social interactions. More recently, uh, of course, Facebook has been in the news in the wake of the US presidential election, particularly around this, this now, I think, grossly overused and misused phrase, uh, fake news, uh, the question of what's trustworthy, and perhaps more importantly, questions as well about how people's vision of what's happening in the world 
is narrowed by the way in which Facebook presents the world to them. What has been described as a sort of a, as a, a by, by one observer of Facebook as being a, a slot machine for the things that you want, which then monetizes that things that you want thing by just giving you nothing except what you want. That in the realm of politics and news, I think increasingly we're seeing that 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 the consequences of that are perhaps are perhaps not desirable. Now. In the immediate wake of the of the election and the controversy over fake news, Zuckerberg was very dismissive of the criticisms of his company's role in that. And there is no doubt that the six thousand word long, and it's worth noting that there is no uh, uh, there is no editor on the internet, so he could have really written this in two thousand words and might have been better off doing so. But this six thousand word long piece definitely represents a shift from that initial position post-election. And it represents, I think, something more broadly, which is that Facebook is acknowledging the fact that it has responsibilities, which it's tried its best to keep away from up until now. But it is now coming increasingly under pressure, particularly in Europe, from from suggestions about, about regulation and being held accountable in the way that, for example, we in the news industry have used to be being for, for many years. And, and particularly... It's what we've talked about in, in terms of, of, of legal reform in Europe uh, is this idea of a duty of care that, uh, in other words, it has some obligation to its customers to ensure that what it is putting out is safe, is not offensive, is not, you know, wh- we're beginning to see the emergence of that idea. I think we're beginning to see uh, a slow and reluctant acceptance of that idea by Facebook and by by other social media companies. But it is slow and it is, I would think, it's a kind of a defensive crouch and they'll give an inch so they don't have to give a mile. And I think we're at the start of what's probably going to be a long process, which will probably include Facebook trying to propose its own solutions to some of these problems, because they are indeed definitely problems, rather than submitting to regulatory or legislative uh, reforms of one sort or another. But there there is no doubt, yes, as you say, Facebook, even a year or two ago, Facebook was still trying to present itself entirely as a tech company, uh, a completely value neutral service. And what people did with it was those people's responsibility rather than Facebook's responsibility. The reality actually is that under, under the hood of the technology which provides Facebook services to people, not just Facebook, by the way, it also owns Instagram and WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger. Those are all increasingly powerful, powerful platforms as well. But that within those it is it is manipulating what people see in their feeds. It's making decisions in the form of algorithms about what is or isn't acceptable to its users. And it's, and it's adjusting those all the time in order to meet its prime commercial objectives in order to make as much money as possible out of advertising because ultimately that's what Facebook is, is it's a, it's a communications platform monetizing people's communications through advertising. Monetizing our, our product as newspapers uh, for, for their particular, um, in, in their interest. Well, that's, that's our view on it and that is definitely a view and that is definitely true from our perspective. But I think it's fair to say that that's not the only perspective in which we look at Facebook. So I don't disagree with you, Paddy, but I think it's important in in terms of understanding what's happening here to understand that news and news media, important though they are, not just in our our worlds, but for any properly functioning civic society, are only one part of what Facebook does. And it's interesting to look at what 
what Zuckerberg, how, how Zuckerberg frames this in, in these 6,000 words. He frames it in what to me seems to be a rather rather creepy way. I mean, we, I, I think there are problems with Facebook and with the power of Facebook. And one of the problems with the power of Facebook is the fact that it is effectively a monopoly. There seems to be some underlying dynamic among a lot of these tech companies, the way in which they grow very fast and become monopolies in their field. So Google is by far the most important search engine. Airbnb is by far the most important, you know, holiday rental package and and Facebook is the most important social media package although there are other competitors out there in that area so therefore there is there, there is a level of power over people and rather than say that um, uh, that 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 Facebook owns the news media or, or it uses its content. Facebook uses its users. There's a truism about just because it's a truism doesn't mean it's not true, which is that because uh, because any service on the internet which you use where you don't have hand over money for it, well, in that case, you are the product. And you and I as Facebook users are the product who are sold essentially to advertisers. But there is no doubt that within that, there is a voracious appetite for content as the way in which that product is monetized. And we uh, and the news media in general form a very important part of that, along with user-generated content and entertainment and various other types of things. But to come back to the to the lengthy screed, which, which he wrote a couple of weeks ago, he, he talks about this in terms of civic engagement and civic society. And, and he talks about, and communities, very much so. So he, he, he goes back, I suppose you could say, to basics, to the Facebook, to Facebook as it was launched, first of all, as a, uh, as a college uh, um, bulletin board, essentially, for students in the United States, and then very hugely successfully grown out beyond that to society at large and to nearly everybody, to the tomb of two billion people who work it today. And he has some interesting thoughts about what that might mean into the future. And he talks about developing technologies because he is a technologist. So he sees technological solutions to most problems. He talks about using artificial intelligence, AI and various other kinds of tools in order to help people to, for example, I think politically organize or civically organize, he's suggesting. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I find that idea a bit creepy, you know, because one of the, if, if, if Facebook becomes the place in which people uh, create civic organizations or interact with each other or perhaps engage in the democratic process in the future, well, that's really a further extension of Zuckerberg and Facebook's monopoly. And it means that the marketplace of ideas, which is crucial to a, to a civic democracy, becomes even more privatized than it is already within the, the, uh, the all-loving, all-embracing uh, uh, world of Facebook, which I think could not be a good thing. And we've been discussing, actually, in, in, in recent days, the work of a group called Cambridge Analytica, uh, which is, if you like, uh, uh, perhaps the future of, of, of Facebook, even, in, in, the, in that it's based on managing data and managing what it knows about uh, uh, citizens. Uh, and God knows Facebook knows an awful lot about its users in order to predict how they will vote and prod them in directions to which they would vote. Now, is there, is there anything, actually more seriously political in, in what uh, Zuckerberg is doing. I mean, he's, he's gone on a global tour of, of America. He's hired a guy called David Plouffe, who's a, a, a political uh, organiser. A well-known one. Yes. Very well-known yeah. political organiser to act as his head of advocacy. Uh, is, this, is, this, is Zuckerberg beginning to move into the political arena himself? I think he'll got to have to be careful about it because I think yes, uh, yes with caveats, I think is probably the answer to that. Um, one of the things worth bearing in mind about the controversy after the American election was that 
up until last summer, Facebook had actually had real human beings moderating some of its content, particularly around issues of such as hate speech and political propaganda and areas like that. And a controversy blew up with allegations that that moderation team was politically biased towards uh, the liberal side of the argument in the in the, in the American, uh, uh, I suppose, political landscape and against the Republican or conservative uh, point of view. And they dispensed with that team uh, as, as a result of that. That controversy, which many people feel made the fake news problem worse when it, when, it, when it emerged in September and October, particularly of last year. And I think what that particular episode illustrates is the difficulty that Facebook, like any large American corporation, has in trying to play po- both sides of the political divide at any time. There is no doubt that Silicon Valley in general is seen as being, with a couple of notable exceptions, much more favorable to the Democratic side in the, in, in the, American, in the American context and supporting Hillary Clinton for the most part, you know, against Donald Trump. And so that the, I suppose what you might call the high politics of access to political influence, legislators and lawmakers in, in, in Washington and on the Hill, Zuckerberg has to bear all that, bear all that in mind when, when he's doing this. The, the, the more fundamental thing, and one of the things which Zuckerberg acknowledges here and is worth thinking about, is that those two two billion users are all across the world. They operate in all kinds of societies, some more democratic than others, some with very different cultural norms from others. So the question is, if if, if they're looking to go deeper, uh, not just as a as a commercial project, but also with some some impetus towards a, toward, toward, towards a, a a civic purpose of some sort, how does that work differently? not just the difference between Western Europe and the United States, which are quite profound, uh, but in the, in the Muslim world, in the developing world, in Asia, does that mean that Facebook needs to be more tailored to the expectations, both legal and cultural, of what norms might be in those societies? I think those are those are huge questions uh, for Facebook to answer. My, my personal view, for what it's worth, which is probably not very much, is that if the problem is Facebook, the answer cannot be Facebook. And Zuckerberg is ultimately suggesting here that the problems can be can be uh, addressed by him and his company and his technologists to use these kinds of technologies in a more and more sophisticated way. You referred to Cambridge Analytica and some of the initial suggestions about what they did were really quite terrifying in, 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 in terms of what was suggested could be done. Some people have poo-pooed that since then and said that actually the, the, the case is overstated. I think there is no doubt that the combination of vast amounts of personal data freely surrendered by people because they use these sites such as Facebook with the kind of with the kind of technology with the kind of cognitive psychology uh, which you can which you can bring to that mix has the has the potential to fundamentally shift the way in which democracy and ideas and the free spread of ideas work work in society and those are those are very profound issues which 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 in my view need to be taken on board by by governments and by legislators rather than just left in the hands of a Mark Zuckerberg Thank you very much, Hugh. Thanks to Suzanne Lynch and Hugh Linham, to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon. I'm Patrick Smith. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. (laughs) 